Welcome to Financial Planning for Oil and Gas Professionals, hosted by certified financial planners Justin Brownlee and Jared Machen of Brownlee Wealth Management. The only podcast dedicated to those of you in the oil and gas profession to help you optimize investments, lower future taxes, and grow your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Welcome back to another episode of FPOG, Financial Planning for Oil and Gas Professionals. This week on the podcast, we're going to do a roundtable. We're going to tackle a few topics in kind of bite-sized modules, and we'll keep it light, breezy, uh, and just provide our thoughts on it. This week, we're talking about home prices, inflation, student loans, and college football tickets. All right, Justin, let's start with the first topic. So I want to talk about home prices, right? Because if you look at the data, it's insane. Everybody knows it's insane. The median sale price for a home in America between 2020 and 2022 is up approximately 45% from 322 to 468, right? So prices are up 45% over the last two years. My question is for you is, do you think that buying a home right now makes sense? Do you, do you think homes are overvalued? Yes. I think buying a home right now makes sense. Yes and no. Yes. Homes are overvalued uh, for the next one to two years. No, homes are not overvalued. I think homes are undervalued relative to the next 10, 20 years. I have, I have some more reasons behind that. Jared, what are your answers? Yeah, I would say like, it all depends on your holding period, holding period, kind of like what you said. Like, I think it's definitely more expensive but I, I don't think I don't necessarily think it's as overvalued as people might think, right? I think there was such a big delay in homeownership and household formation for a little while, like as kind of millennials came into money and kind of delayed some of the the big family milestones of family formation and buying a house. Like I think there's a lot of room to run, despite how much it's appreciated. So I mean, of course, I would caveat all that with saying home buying. I don't think it's primarily an investment decision, right? So like. If you own a home for less than five years, the vast majority of your payments going to interest, right? So you're not really you're not really paying off any any meaningful amount of principal. So like I, I wouldn't say whether or not it's a good investment should drive the decision. Like, does it work for your family? Like in my situation personally, I paid for a house that was probably two x what it cost five years ago, and I have a seven percent interest rate, which seems ridiculous. But it like, sounds I'm really so happy bad when it. you say it that way. But I mean, so bad. And I'm a financial planner, right? So I felt like if you know, definitely not the not the right financial decision. And ideally, in hindsight, I would have done it earlier or better. But I still have a lot of reasons to believe that it made sense for our family and that it's a, you know, a good family investment and, and that things could get more expensive. Okay. I want to also give a little give a little caveat here. Buying a house is not like buying an index fund. There is a there can be a huge spectrum of if you're in, you know, Houston, Texas, or if you're in Fayetteville, Arkansas, if you're in Ann Arbor, Michigan, there are houses that you can buy today that are a really good value, make a lot of sense, will end up being a very positive investment. And then there's also houses on the market today that if you buy them, it will be a bad experience. And Jared, you know, knowing about the house you bought, I really think you got a great house at a great value and it will end up being a very good investment even though there could be there could be 10 people that bought houses the same generic location the same month that you did and it could be a bad investment. Oh, actually I I just want to reiterate that. I would I would repeat that exact same sentence. That the variance is really wide buying a house today. You do need to be careful 
but it's still a good idea if it makes sense for you and your family. That's right. That's right. And two, I also wouldn't, I I also, you know, wouldn't buy a house banking on a, a, a house you can't afford banking on a refinance. Right. Oh, that's, that's also good call. So I wouldn't do that, but I actually, yeah, I, I think it's very area specific, but like Texas is a place where we are both overly bullish, right? So I think I think depending on what part of the country you're in, I think the oppor- the range of outcomes might be might be wider or a little skewed up or down. But all in all, I think you know home prices in America um, they are extremely expensive, but I don't think it's crazy overvalued just due to the macro factors. Yeah, I mean a couple points. I've lived in Houston and I've lived in Fort Worth over the past decade. I really think that both places are going to be worth a lot more 10 years from now than they are today. But I also want to give a personal anecdote. So Jared, you know this. Um gosh, what was it? 12 years ago, I bought a house in Fayetteville, Arkansas. That's where I met my wife. She was at the U of A. So I buy this house and for a good 5 or 6 years after I did that, I kind of had this arrogant thought that I'm a really sharp real estate buyer. I'm a really good, I know how to buy a house and turn it into a great investment. In reality, that's a really dumb thought. Buying a house that turned into a great investment in 2010 or whenever I bought that, I mean, it was it was shooting fish in a barrel. I mean, you you had to genuinely do something very wrong to not make money buying a house at that time. And so the difference there is those days are not where we're at today. There are plenty of ways you could buy a house today and it could be a bad investment. So you do need to be careful, but I still like buying houses now. Yeah. And I think the other thing too, about like, like the migration to work from home, right? Like the, the demand for space and like the home being a bigger priority. I feel like COVID reoriented that and kind of made it crazy for a while, but even post that people realized Hey, with the new normal of, of hybrid work, I might be spending a lot more time in my house. So, so I think for all those reasons we mentioned, I would say, you know, in the short term, you know, prices are a little heavy. I think the market's going to get locked because everyone with a sub 3% mortgage isn't going to sell their house unless they absolutely have to, to buy a house that's a lot more expensive at a much higher interest rate. So I think, you know, prices in the short term could, you know, could come down a little bit, but I think, you know, long term, I still think there's a lot, a lot of room for it to run. Yeah. Not sure if it's going to explode in the next two years. Pretty confident it's going to be higher in the next 20 years. Yeah. Justin, let's, it's kind of connected to this, but let's just take, let's take a step back and talk about inflation, right? So like one of the things that I don't know, our listeners have probably heard ad nauseum about just in the media, not from us, because we don't really talk about it, but the idea of like a soft landing, right? The Fed's raising interest rates. They're in hopes of trying to cool inflation, but they don't want to, you know, destroy demand too much or, you know, raise unemployment meaningfully or, you know, create a recession in the process. So the idea of, you know, normalizing interest rates without creating a recession is kind of the soft landing that the Fed is aspiring for uh, as they're thinking about changing Fed funds rates and interest rate policy. Do you think... At this point, you know, we're recording this in early March of 2022. Do you think it's happening or it's or it's possible for it to happen? All right. So we're here in 23. Is it possible? I think it's possible. Um, and yeah, I, I and the reason I, I think it's possible. Uh, I think things are, are relatively good still when you look at company balance sheets, when you look at personal balance sheets. 
Now I caveat that, gosh, there's there's also a lot of concern, you know, in interest rates skyrocketing. What is that going to do as consumer debt rolls around? What is what's what's going to happen if unemployment rises? And then you have a ton of people that go belly up on their on their car note and, you know, would home foreclosures enter the equation at some point, too. I mean, there's so many. Yeah. So essentially now I'm, I'm talking myself out of what I think. So now I want to hear what your answer is. I, th- I think it's possible. But I mean, here's the thing. Like, is it I, I think it's going to happen. I think the soft landing could happen if the Fed stopped pretty soon, but it doesn't seem like they're set on stopping soon. I think the Fed is too obsessed with the 2% inflation target that I think they're going to they're gonna overextend. I think one of the things about like raising interest rates is like when you feel the full effects of that, like we raised interest rates a disproportionate percent in the last year. And like, I don't, I don't think we've felt the full effects of that. Right. So I think if we stopped here and really just gave the economy time to digest those things, because I think we're still digesting those things, I think maybe we could have a soft landing. But I think the Fed is just too hell bent on getting inflation back to where it was, which I don't even know how much control they have over that. Um, So I think it's possible. I don't I don't think we're going to get there because I think the Fed's going to overcorrect just because the feedback loop, they're not they're not letting the feedback loop take its full course and having the patience to to give to give the market time to digest. All right, I want to I want to unwrap some of the what you just said about the feedback loop. When you raise interest rates, a, a Jared, I would argue an appropriate feedback loop on that is three to five years, and we're talking about trying to make decisions after doing that after six months and stuff. So I say three to five years because guess what? Most of America didn't need to buy a new car in the past six months since interest rates have exploded, right? And for crying out loud, for the first three months of interest rates going up, I mean, you could still get 0% financing at dealerships and stuff. Well, maybe. I mean, there was a car shortage, so maybe not. But my point is, a lot of people did not have to replace or did not have to buy a new house. They didn't have to move. They didn't have to buy a new car, replace cars. So uh, there's just so many things in life that you don't necessarily have to finance, and if we're talking about the entire economy, I mean, even if you're, you know, a Dave Ramsey uh, disciple and you just would never borrow for a car or, or, or something like that, well, you you still understand that hundreds of a, hundreds of millions of people around the world do. And your point is, we don't necessarily have the feedback loop ready right now to assess what happened there. Yeah, and two, right? Like, I mean, rising interest rates really matter, but also, right, like. The consumer is better positioned to stand it if their biggest asset as a sub, like if, if their biggest mortgaged asset is a sub 3% rate, right? So like, that's the other thing is like the consumers, I mean, pretty well positioned to deal with even moderate rates. You know, un- I, you know, kind of, this was the second part of this, but like, I don't understand the fixation on the 2% target, right? Like, why are we so aggressive? So I don't think we're going to have a soft landing because the Fed's going to overcorrect. Is 2% even possible? I mean, potentially, but like I would, that was what it was from 2010 to 2020. That's what it was. Like I, I kind of, I don't even know if, if I, if I entirely believe that, yeah, that was CPI. But like, if you look at healthcare inflation from 2010 to 2020, that was, you know, an excess of 5%. If you look at the inflation of college tuition, uh, that was probably close to five, probably, you know, four to 5% for public universities, probably 7% for private schools. So like we've already been seeing high 
in, in some segments, right? Not not as broad as it as it is today, but in, in some sectors of the economy, of lived experience of a lot of our clients, we've already been seeing inflation run way hotter than two percent. So I don't think it's possible in the near term. I don't think it's a good target, and I don't think it's even been the lived reality of a lot of our clients over the last t- decade. Great point. And you think about that feedback loop, the first question, real estate, I think it's also a little bit tricky to assess what what is a home worth right now, uh, because so few homes are on the market, because most people are sitting on their 2 3% mortgage, and they don't want to change that. So inventory is exceptionally low. We've only had this high interest rate environment for home loans for less than a year. I mean, even when interest rates went up, you can get qualified and lock in a rate for a few months. So, I mean, it wasn't until summer of last year where virtually anyone buying had the higher rate. It kind of remains to be seen. But I I think, you know, I think the, the Fed has a tough job. And I also think the 2%, like, I don't think it's this linear thing. I think it ebbs and flows. There's just, the, the economy is too multifaceted, multinational, multidimensional for it to just be this straight line down. And I think we're already beginning to see, like, I think peak inflation has passed, right? I think there's going to be ebbs and flows on on the movement downward. It's not going to be this nice linear line like the Fed wants it to be. So just kind of recognize like the, you know, the feedback loop being this thing that's living and breathing and multifaceted. And, you know, there, there might be an inflation print that's higher than the next one over the next four years, probably is going to be the case. But if directionally it's down, it's, I kind of liken it to like stock market volatility, right? If the long-term trend is directionally where we want it to go, why jeopardize any of the economy or try, you know, intentionally raise rates to the point where it might not be sustainable? Totally. And yeah, such, I'm just, I keep thinking about that feedback loop point. It's such a good point. Uh, when something happens when it, with a publicly traded company, every market participant understands what's happening and gets feedback in a very, very, very short amount of time. And there's just so many other parts of the economy where the feedback loop isn't that fast. What do we have next? Okay, let's talk. It's kind of connected to this. So student loans. So student loans. So tuition uh, averaged inflation was 4.63% was the inflation rate from 2010 to 2020. The cost of a four-year public school is 37 times higher than it was in 1963. Oof, that's not inflation adjusted, but even if you adjust for inflation, I'm sure it's not a good number. Do we think, what do you think, like, will college prices continue to go up? Yes. My answer is yes. And I've got more to share on that. Jared, what's your answer? My answer is yes. Kind of similar answer to, um, home purchases, I think there's going to be dispersion. I think like some schools that have like really good positioning in the marketplace, like it's just going to continue to get crazy expensive or schools that are like status symbols, like, you know, Ivy leagues or very small liberal arts colleges that have a lot of notoriety. I think those are going to like appreciate, but I think like B tier or like lower tier private universities, I I feel like there's going to be a lot of consolidation there. And then state universities will be somewhere in between. So I think, I think Yes, prices will go up, but I think it's a variance depending on the type of institution you're referring to. I like those thoughts. This statistic is pretty wild. So, Jared, you mentioned what tuition did. This is just around what did students actually borrow? So, from 2009 to 2010, that academic year, if we fast forward a decade, go to 2019, 2020, the average student borrowed 65% more in federal loans. So, you know... Tuition is one thing, but also just interesting to see the raw data around what are students borrowing? 
and it's exploded. And this is, you know, we're not going to have time to dive into the ins and outs of this entire topic. But Jared, I mean, if the federal government does get in the business of, of being someone who pays back those loans, well, then that's, you know, it, it's another green light for institutions to continue to charge more. Functionally, you can charge whatever borrowers are, are going to to finance. And so if, if financing is available and if it, if that can, if that ladder keeps increasing, nothing will stop tuition from increasing. It gets back to feedback loops, Justin. If you're going to ask teen, if you're going to make teenagers make a big decisions and, you know, mortgage their future in the hopes of having a better opportunity set, that's not really easy to numerically quantify. They're going to, you know, they're going to take advantage of it, right? Like they're young, it's early on, like they, they, they have a generation, like their parents believed, hey, this is the only way to, to be successful, to make it, make a good living, which I would challenge that notion, but I still think it's prevalent in society. And also too, you don't really have to deal with the consequence, like future you has to deal with those consequences. And so it's really easy to pay 10% more in tuition if, if you're not actually tangibly feeling the pain of, you know, paying that out of pocket today with money you have. Yes. I mean, I remember eight, nine years ago, you know, reading the Wall Street Journal and seeing, you know, some fun story about, look at this house in New York that's $12 million for a two-bedroom, you know, penthouse. And just thinking, how in the world are they able to do that? Surely that's going to come crashing down at some point. And then that exact same thought has been there with student loans forever. Surely Baylor or TCU is not going to be able to keep charging 60000 a year. But no, they are. And the number keeps climbing. And their acceptance rates keep going down. Yeah. And there's plenty of parties that are willing to give money to 18-year-olds. And just like you mentioned, how easy is that opt-in? If you're 18, you don't know the full effects of it. And you don't have to deal with the consequences of it immediately. So you get a sign and you get to go where you want. And yeah, I think it's going to keep going up. Yeah. And like to be super personal with this, like my parents, I went to a private high school, but for college, they said, hey, we're going to pay, you're going to have to pay for half of it with student loans just to learn, kind of learn the value of the education. And it was one of those things where, you know, in hindsight, it was helpful because I had buy-in and kind of understanding, but even still, it was so easy to get money. And it was so difficult to understand the incremental benefit, right? So I looked at a bunch of different schools with a bunch of different costs, but you know, one of the things that wasn't even explained to me and I tried to conceptualize, but it was really difficult to do is, okay, what's the incremental benefit of university A versus university B? University A may result in additional loans of X. What, is, what does that actually mean for my financial outcomes? And I feel like there's a lack of that education. And so I think colleges, a lot of times to just take advantage of it and just, you know, just assume that, hey, people are going to continue to pay it. It's, it's, it's a valuable experience. People see value in the experience. And so we're just going to keep charging and raising rates. Jared, there's an unknowability there, right? I mean, you're, you don't necessarily know what is the payoff going to be if you go to an ultra prestigious school compared to a, a state school compared to something else. And huge, huge wide range of spectrums of, of where that can fall. Yeah. So there's just not a lot of transparency and it's too easy to get the money. So for all of those reasons, college prices continue to go up because people will keep financing it. So let's close on another college note. Last topic, college football tickets, right? So I think it was uh, Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, but uh, historically the way college football tickets, or I guess in, in, in near history, you had to make a big donation to the university to be eligible in a pool to get college football tickets. But the benefit of that was, is if you 
that deduction or contribution to the university was tax deductible, but Tax Cuts and Jobs Act rem- stripped that away. So it just became a whole lot less tax efficient to uh, give to your university uh, the appropriate amount and in the appropriate way to be eligible for college football tickets. And you were telling me before we hopped on the show about, you know, a lot of your fidelity uh, clients and, you know, in the branch you worked at, just being up in arms about that because it was a meaningful difference to them in their situation. My question for you, Justin, is do you think we'll see the tax deduction reinstated for college football tickets? I am going to predict yes. And, you know, I guess this would potentially sunset in 26. And I'm just going to go out on a limb and say that we will get some tax deductibility back on college football season tickets. Jared, to your point, yeah, I had several, uh, especially, you know, Aggies in the Woodlands up in arms that their season tickets no longer had the 80% tax deductible rule applied to them. And we were talking about this. It's funny just how sharp every athletic department in the country gets because they can charge, you know, your season ticket is $150, but you do have a required donation of $12,000 to be eligible to buy that $150 ticket, which is really smart. And now the rules changed. And so everything's tweaked a little bit. Uh, I think it's probably going to come back. What do you think, Jared? I, I, you're probably better versed in this, especially because it's a college football topic. For the, just for the fans, I'm going to take the other. I'm going to say it's not going to happen. So I think what I think what's going to happen. The question ultimately comes down to: Do the tax loss sunset or not? I think if the tax loss sunset, then it automatically gets reinstated. But I don't think tax laws are going to sunset. I bet there's going to be another piece of legislation. They're going to want to change some things, and that'll be one of the things that they won't want to let back in. So really, it comes. I think for me, it conceptually is, do tax laws sunset? I don't think they will. Uh, or I'll, I'll take the position of, I don't think they will. I think it's a jump ball at this point because they don't take, and, and because they won't sunset, a new piece will be introduced. Nobody's going to want to sign off on that. I think that's not a bad take. Um, you know, I could see it going either way. I hope it does. Uh, as many people have, have discussed, live attendance in sporting events has struggled a bit over the past 10, 15 years. Um, so just as a you know fan of college football, college sports in general, I would love to see it back just as kind of another incentive for people to buy tickets, go to games. Uh, it's really, really fun to have an environment where, you know, it's a, it's a crowded stadium. And that has been hard to achieve for schools everywhere. And, and I mean, you know, not to be a Big 12 homer and, and pick on this, but frankly, half of the SEC schools are just totally empty every week. They're not showing up. And so it's not just, you know, Pac-12 schools that don't really care about football anyway. This is this is kind of a nationwide problem. And even, you know, the heart of college football country in the South, in the Southeast, in the Sun Belt, even, even in that region, it, it's getting a little bit difficult to get people to show up every weekend. So it'll be interesting. Justin, I think we just fixed it, right? The way we get college tuition down, we reinstate that exemption. A lot of the ticket bowl sales go back towards the university versus, you know, the athletic program in NIL and we lower that tuition. So easy, problem solved. That's a great thought. Yes. And maybe maybe start allowing foreclosures on student loans to uh, stop some of the borrowers. Yeah. Yeah. Make it, uh, make it not exempt from bankruptcy. Um, but that is outside of the scope of this lightning round podcast. Love to hear your ideas, uh, on this format and what you think might be good for us to riff on for future topics. Uh, thanks. We'll see you next time. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. You can subscribe or connect with us at brownleewealthmanagement.com or send ideas for future episodes to podcast at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed during this show or episode should be viewed as investment, legal, and tax advice. If you have questions pertaining to your specific situation, please consult the appropriate qualified professional.